Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to our 12 o'clock service. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just bought, you know, one hour behind. Look, if I ever ran for uh, election, I would only run on one thing. I think that on Friday, about 6 p.m., we fall back. And then Monday at 4 p.m., we spring forward. Every week, I think that would be an amazing thing to do. I just think that would be absolutely amazing, right? Yeah. Our, um, <clears throat> our government is uh, voting on the Sunshine Act that would get rid of all this anyway. Um, it passed through the Senate, and so it's hung up in the House for some reason. But, you know, it's called the Sunshine Protection Act. Isn't that just, oh, it's, it's so cute. The, sun, sun's, the, sunshine, the Sunshine Protection Act. Very, very cute, very cute thing. Um, I was watching YouTube, because <clears throat> that's where I get my news now. Because if I don't want to listen to it, I just go to something else, Right. So I ran across this uh, news thing. I forget the I forget where they're from, but this lady was talking about the um, health implications of daylight savings time, and so she had a an official, like an expert, come and talk. And she asked him. She said, "Well, what are the health implications of daylight savings time?" Now I don't know about you, but I didn't know that there was health implications concerning springing forward or going back. I didn't realize that it affected me and my health. I know it affects preschoolers, right? Right? Preschoolers, it, it affects those, but my health. So <clears throat> the first thing she said, and I hope I get these numbers right. It's all made up on the spot anyway. 27% uh, of people six to nine weeks after you fall back, um, have high levels of anxiety. 18% of people, there's an 18% increase, right, in people having heart attacks eight to nine weeks later. And then she said there's a 7% increase in depression six to nine weeks later in, in this study that they did. And in my mind, I'm thinking, all this time, I thought it was the holidays, Right? And lo and behold, no, it's, it's because we fell back, you know. It's not because of the stress of the holidays that this happened, but it's, it's because we fell back. Yeah, so that's, well, that's that, I guess. Yeah. So um, the title of the message is We Are Family. How many of you, as soon as you saw that, heard, we are family, and you started, your head started, you know, doing like this, right? Right? And um, they, on the video, by the way, that song came out in 1979, so you just dated yourself. So, <clears throat> so in the video, there's three ladies, and, and there's the front lady, you know, and there are two ladies back here, and they're, they're wearing this, like, wavy stuff that's just waving around, right? And they're, at the beginning of it, they're going, <laughs> right? And I don't know how they do their legs that way, but they're, like, perfect angles. It really looks cool when they do it, not so much when I do it. So, so they're doing this, and they're doing this, and then they go like this. We are family, all my sisters and me. And it's at that point that I realized that is where church, children's church, hand motions came from. It came from those sisters, 
we are family, all my brothers, sisters, and me. Tanya, we've done that before. Like, you know, the dum 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 didn't even know that that was an Easter egg until now. Did you? Yeah, didn't even know that. So we are family. But that song, when it comes to the church, is actually true. You and I, if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we're all a part of the same family. And so with that in mind, I want you to turn your Bibles to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, this is part one of We Are Family. Uh, the second part is actually going to be in two weeks. So, you know, you get to be in suspense until it comes out, right? What is going to happen in two weeks? Next week, we have a different sermon. Um, I'll be here, so not that that matters, but there's a different sermon in between these two that kind of ties them both together. So first part this week and second part in two weeks. I'm absolutely out of breath. It must have been the dance move, you know. So first, first Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, and this is what it says, we ask you brothers. So right from the start, we know that he is addressing the family. And if you flip over and look at verse 25, he continues this family sort of, of theme. He says, brothers, pray for us. So he's trying to get the whole, whole family to pray for us. And then in verse 26, it says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now listen, if you do that in this church, you're going to get hit. I'm just warning you up front, don't greet anybody with a holy kiss, <clears throat> especially depending on who it is, right? Um, <laughs> 27, it says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So this section of scripture is really focusing on the family of God and who we are. And what he's doing is he's giving little sentences. There's not really a context around this other than that he's talking to his family and he's trying to get these little sentences in before the letter ends. It could be that he was out of time. Um, I believe that uh, it's because of the direction of the Holy Spirit that he's adding these phrases. I also think that these phrases were uh, key phrases that he might have used in sermons when he preached there. And so when he says it, people remember maybe that message. Because you know you all remember that, right? Like if you get a key phrase, you would remember the messages from the past. We all do that. I'm actually making fun of myself too. Because I'm not so sure that I would remember every message that I heard just because of a key phrase. But if that message was very impactive, you would, right? Like when I say Leviticus, that does something to this group, right? No, not anymore. Maybe it used to in the past. Like <clears throat> when we first started, you might not have been excited about it, but Toward the middle, I think we were more excited about Leviticus than we ever have been in our entire uh, career of development in spirituality and church, <laughs> right? <laughs> we got to the middle of it. Yeah, so that's what he's doing. So let's, let's jump in and do one of the phrases. In verse 15, it says this. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That is a great sentence, isn't it? Don't do evil, don't return evil for evil, and always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, you and I have the same problem that they had back when he was, he was writing this. <clears throat> and that is this. We often have situations where we have arguments or we get into an altercation with someone 
And where someone says this little phrase, and we say a bigger phrase to hurt them further. And this little phrase hurt, hurt us. So we, we say this phrase, and it, it hurts us even more. And, and then this person says a bigger phrase to hurt us even more than this phrase hurt them. And then this phrase is bigger to hurt this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I talking about your marriage? Because if you're married, you've had these altercations before where it starts little. Like, this haven't, hasn't happened in my home, so don't think this is Nicole or me. I'm just giving an illustration. Like, someone is cooking, I don't know, bacon in the morning, and it wakes somebody up. Because, let me tell you, if somebody's cooking bacon in the house, I'm getting up. That stuff smells too good. Right? So you get up, and you have to get there, especially if the kids are home, before they get to the bacon, or there won't be any left. So you have to, you know, survival fittest. All that said, somebody starts baking, and they get irritated because they got woken up because of the bacon. And they're irritated, and so that makes them say something that has nothing to do with the bacon. And before too long, it builds because this one person, or both of them were irritated, I don't know, one person was irritated, and it builds over time, and it's evil to evil to evil to evil to evil to evil. And what happens after a period of time, it just explodes, Right? That's what happens in, in an argument. And what he's trying to say here is don't return an evil word for an evil word. Return an evil word with a good word. Now let me be clear. That good word might not be um, safe. <laughs> it might be the truth. But it's in how you present the good word. Let me give you an illustration of this. I've been, I've been watching the Arizona governor election, gubernatorial election, because, of course, I'm voting in Arizona. Um, <clears throat> it could happen for one of the parties. But nonetheless, um, there's, a, there's a person running, and her name is Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Carrie Lake, but I personally like her. I like her. I've watched her videos on YouTube, and I think she's just sharp. And so there was a... A reporter, she was in front of a bunch of press, and the reporter was from CBS, and he asked her this question. He said, how do you feel, no, what would you say to the woman that lost her son to gun violence? And Carrie Lake said, um, can you repeat that question? And she said, and the guy said, um, how do you feel about the woman who lost her son to gun violence? And Carrie said, well, do you know the woman's name? And the reporter just repeated the question. She said, no, no, no. Do you know the lady's name that lost her son? And the reporter couldn't come up with the name. So, said, well, do you know who the son was? The reporter couldn't come up with the son's name. And so Carrie went into saying, um, I feel very bad. And she said not only the name of the mother, but the son that had passed away. And in that moment, she talked as a mother saying, I, I really feel bad. I can't do it like she did it because she was eloquent. But she, I really feel bad for this. I, I, I'm a mother. I feel for her. I would never want to lose one of my children. And she turned back to the reporter and said, probably a good thing for you to do is to quit doing the propaganda and actually find out about the people that you seemingly are reporting about. And so in that moment, you had a great example of how not to return an evil word to the reporter, but how to say, this is how you're supposed to do it. I know the people's names, and you need to do your job. 
That's basically, and she did it very well. It was absolutely amazing. If you have any time to watch her and her responses to some of these people, it is, it is kind, but she stands for the truth. And I say this to say this particular statement. There are times where a good word is the truth, and the person that you're telling it to might not take it that way. But that does not mean that you do not approach it with love and with peace and to help them out. You don't return an evil word for an evil word. You return it with the truth and you stand for what is right. And so we don't throw evil words back at you. We shouldn't do that. What we should do is step back a minute and say, okay, here's the situation. How can I come back at this with truth but approach it with a good word rather than another destructive phrase that's going to hurt that particular person. Track with me? So great. So that is how he starts this particular thing. So let's go to the next thing, okay? Um, One of my favorite people is John Maxwell. I've, I've told you that before. He teaches leadership. He's not a theologian, okay? And he teaches about respect. Now, when he teaches about respect, he teaches about how a leader can gain respect from the people that he's trying to lead. And so he goes through this formula of, of what you need to have in mind and what you need to do and how you need to act and, and, and be, rather, in order to get respect from people that you're trying to lead. And he uses this acrostic. It's, it's a respect acrostic. And here are a couple of things that he says. He says, respect yourself and those you work with. That, that's good. That's good. Exceed the expectations of others. That's another good one to gain respect. Uh, Stand firm on your convictions and principles. That is a clear way to get respect. Uh, Possess maturity beyond your years. That can be challenging, but that is also part of respect. Experience success in your family life and career. That is a way that we can get um, respect. And then contribute to the success of others and think ahead of others. So it's all about how you can act in order to gain respect of the people that you're trying to lead. Now the Bible here in this particular passage of scripture doesn't come at it from the vantage point of how a leader should gain respect, but how the people should respect their leaders. That's how it comes to be. And it gives one phrase that lets us know how we are to respect our leaders. And here it is in verse 12. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So here's that respect thing. We, we want you to respect them. Now, let me pause right here to say this. A church is not a dictatorship. Here's the second thing. A church is also not a democracy. It's not a dictatorship, and it's not a democracy. The church is a family. It's a family. And I'll tell you who our father is, God the Father. And we follow God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is who is the source, the, the aim and driving force, the leading force of our family. What they say goes right? So, Father. And the way that God has set up this whole family is he has placed people into positions to lead the church in the direction that it should go, to to admonish people as it is, and and to lead the church in the direction that it should go, and that direction is dictated by him. For instance, God, the Father, through God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, wants you and I to take the gospel to the world and make disciples, 
right? That is what he wants us to do. And so he has placed leadership around us in order to cause that to happen, in order so we can be led to accomplish that particular goal. Now he continues in verse 13, and here's where he gives instruction. He says this, And highly esteemed them, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Why do you respect the leaders of your church? You respect them because of their work. Listen, you don't respect leaders because of what they look like or how they dress or if they say hi to you or if they don't say hi to you or if they shake your hand or if they were at your birthday party or if they were not at your birthday party. That is not the reason that the Bible gives for you to respect your leaders. You respect the leaders of the church because of what they are trying to do. And what are they trying to do? They are trying to get the gospel out to people and disciple people and help them along their way. That is what leaders are supposed to do. And so that's what we are trying to do here. And so you, we all need to respect the work that they're supposed to do. It is not the position. It's not the position. You should never respect a leader because of their position in the, in the house of God. You should respect them because of what they're trying to do. Now, here's where you lose respect. We have permission not to respect the leadership of the church. That is when the leadership of the church is going against the Bible and leading people away from the Bible. That is the moment that you no longer respect them and what they're doing. In fact, if they're going away from Scripture, that is the moment that you leave. It's just the moment you leave. But if they are really trying to dig into Scripture and give you Scripture every, every Sunday and try to invest in you, and they're really trying to get the gospel out to The community, that is a moment that you respect them for what they are trying to do. Now, listen, I'm not the only leader here, okay? We have elders. We have elders. We have deacons. We even have fuel leaders. Um, We have Seth. He's he's on staff. We have Grayson. He's a leader, too. Sorry. Katie is a leader in her own own regard there. She keeps things together here at the church. We have fuel leaders that lead the teenagers. We have Awana leaders that lead the Awana group, whether it's games or it's teaching or it's verses or whatever. There are leaders over our fellowships. They're they're just leaders, people that are trying to lead. And it doesn't matter where the leader is in the organization, in the church, in the family. We respect what they are trying to do because what they are trying to accomplish. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. Okay, give you an illustration to this. Um, <clears throat> this has not happened. So tell your neighbor this has not happened. Okay, you just need to know this is not happening. Just giving you an illustration. This is why you should do this. Um, I love to give out candy at Halloween. I love to give out candy at Halloween. I like to sit there. I like to give out candy. This this past year. Nicole tried to move in on what I, want, uh, what I like to do, so I just sent her around the neighborhood. That's what I did. Just strategized where she was going somewhere else. Just go, I'll take care of the candy. Now, the difference between Nicole and I, the difference between Nicole and I giving out candy is that I give handfuls of candy to the kids that come by. I give handfuls of candy. She doesn't, because in her mind, the two bags of candy not only need to last the entire night that the trick-or-treaters are coming to her house, but there are certain candies that we want to eat later on. Okay? 
So she is strategizing this and thinking this through. So I send her on her way, and I get this text. I mean, I'm giving handfuls of candy to these kids, right, having just a great time. Kids are excited. I'm excited. I get this text. Um, Can you pull out all the Whoppers from the bag of candy and save them for me? And so for the next little bit, I was digging into the bag, taking out these Whoppers for my wife and sticking, sticking them in a separate bag because I love her, and I want her to have these Whoppers, right? So I dug through all these whoppers, I put these in, in the bag, and I began to run out of candy, and it wasn't exactly the end of the night. This happens every year, I never learn. We just run out of candy. So I start kind of scraping, because I don't want to give the whoppers out, but I'm thinking I'm going to have to give the whoppers out. So I finish this bag of candy, and all that's left of these whoppers, and these children come down, and they're just adorable in their costumes. You ever have those, like, if it's the teenagers, you know, okay, you know. I don't mean, but you know, they're not as cute. Honestly, honestly, teenagers, it's not as cute as a little boy that is in some type of costume, just absolutely precious. So three preschool, kindergarten, first grade kids come to the, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to give them the Whoppers. And I I dig into the Whoppers and I give them the Whoppers thinking, man, Nicole's not going to be happy, right? And so they leave. Well, as they're leaving, Nicole comes up, and there's another group of kids right behind her. And I tell her the situation. I've separated all the hoppers. These are all the, this is all that's left. And the kids are coming, and she says this. Well, let's just cut off the lights and not give out <laughs> any more candy. Is this not true? That's what she said. Yeah. I said, okay, okay, that's fine. But these kids coming down the driveway, here's the bag. You do as you feel is right. And so she gave the Whoppers to the kids, of course. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why didn't you just go to Food Lion and for $1.25 get a box of Whoppers? Well, the very next day, that's exactly what she did. She went and she got a whole box of Whoppers, which, which makes a whole deal. So I set that up to say this. We have trunk or treat each year out here. Well, currently we have it in the field, right? And we have like 25 trunks out there. 23 to 27, it's really between that. So the way that we do this is we put candy in a bag so that each person just gives one bag to each one of the trick-or-treaters that that are going through. In other words, it's a Ziploc bag with candy in it. Does everybody follow me? And so you're instructed as you go out there to only give one of those bags to each one of the people that pass by. Now, let's say this. Let's say that there was a group of people, and this has not happened. But let's say there's a group of people that say, hey, forget that. I'm going to give the kids more candy because I think they should get more. And so they go out there, and for, for five, like five trunks get together, and they do a candy conspiracy, Right, And they say, forget this. And they just give as much candy as they want to. And then halfway through the night, they run out of candy. And then they start to complain that we didn't have enough candy for them to give out. But all the while, they did not obey the leader. And I mean, go by the leader's instructions to just give out one piece of candy. Are you tracking? Sometimes when a leader in a church tells you to do something or somebody that's over a particular area or they're running the food out here and they're telling you to do something a certain way, there's a reason why they're telling you to do that because they see the whole picture. It's not just you and how you feel about giving out the candy. It's about everybody 
coming to the church and getting the candy that they came here to get. Is, is this, are you tracking with me? So you admonish and you respect them by saying, hey, I will do it their way. Even though I would do it differently, I will do it their way. And so the, the whole runs smoothly rather than just a group of people just doing what they want. And this is precisely what he's trying to say. He's admonish, listen to, respect what your leaders are doing. They're not in it for themselves. What they're telling you to do is good for you and is good for the whole organization. Is everybody tracking with me on this? Yeah. So, so that is how you respect them. But he goes, a, he goes one step further. <clears throat> And at first, I didn't think this particular phrase had anything to do with respect of the, of the leaders. But as I looked at it, I realized that it did. And this is what it says in the latter part of verse 13. It says, be at peace among yourselves. How do you respect and appreciate your leaders? You're at peace among yourselves. You, you're at peace among yourselves. Um. This week had nothing to do with our church ministry here. It had something to do with the, S, the Southern Baptist Convention and something I'm involved in there. Um, this week, there was um, a couple of individuals that were not at peace with the way that the group was going. And, um, and so instead of me helping get the ball down the field for that, I had to deal with a particular situation, and it took my time. And so... I had to make sure these people were, were appeased and brought back on board because they were just not at, at, at peace with how leadership was handling a particular thing. And so I had to deal with them. Are you tracking? So instead of moving the ball down the field to get a score for the glory of God, I had to back up and deal with all this mess because people were not at peace. See, every time that you decide not to be at peace is a moment that you have decided for the ball not to be moved down the field. Because the leadership at that point, when you're not peaceful, has to deal with your lack of peace to try to figure out what it is and try to deal with you. And it takes time away from them actually moving the ball down the field for the glory of God. Is everybody tracking with me on this? And so it's not that you can never say anything or give an opinion about what's happening. That's not what I'm saying. It's when you become disgruntled and out of your mind. All right. Do you know what I mean? It's that. See, if you, if you have something, and this isn't really happening here. I'm just giving instructions from this. If you have something that needs to change, what you need to do is you need to approach that with peace and love. And approach your leadership with peace and love. You also, when you do that, you approach it without you trying to get your way. And so the leaders have to do the same thing. We, it, leaders go to it with peace and love and, you know, this is the way I wanted to do it, but maybe there's something that they have to say that would help us do this better, see? And you start to have that conversation, handling it with peace and love, and before too long, you have a better product. But if, if people get disgruntled, whether it's leadership or whether it's people that are, that are working, if they disgruntled, it prevents the ball from being moved down the field. And ladies and gentlemen, we don't have time for stupid arguments. Life is short. There's many people that haven't received Jesus as their Savior. 
there is a culture that we need to impact with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not need to waste our time trying to get all the turmoil here. What you do to respect the family is you stay at peace and you handle situations that you might not understand or you might not necessarily agree with. You handle those with a peaceful, loving nature. Does that make sense? And then things go better. It is coming to the table with a good word, with a, something good, rather than all this other junk. So that's, that's conflict resolution there. So the text continues, and it gets off of leadership. It says this, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, <clears throat> there's another time brothers is used, admonish the idol. So now it's what the family does. He's not talking about leadership. He's talking about the family. He's saying that the family are also supposed to admonish. By the way, that same word admonish is in the leadership. Admonish means to exhort, um, to, to warn, to counsel uh, an individual. So when you're warning somebody that they're going down the wrong path, that is part of admonishment. Or if you're encouraging somebody because they're doing the right thing, that is encouragement. It is that admonishment. So it tells the, the people of the church that part of your work that you're supposed to do is just like the leader's works. You are supposed to admonish people. If someone is idle, you speak to them and try to get them back on track. Let me show you that Greek word. It, it looks like this. It's a tachos is, is what that is. Now, here's a different word that doesn't have the alpha or what you think is an A on the front of it. This is tachos. This this actually means um, doing what you are supposed to do is basically what that word means. You do what you're supposed to do, and then when you put the A on front of it, it's the opposite. You're not doing what you are supposed to do. So here are some people that you, as a church, need to admonish. If you see people that are not here, haven't been here in a while, you call them on the phone and you say, why haven't you been in church? That's an admonishment. You might want to put that differently than the way I just said that, Right? But you definitely ask them, I missed you at church. Why, why haven't you been here? And you admonish them to come back. If there's, um, we're going to get to this in a moment, but if there's, if there's a sinful situation that you know that somebody's involved in, you need to admonish them concerning that sinful uh, situation. If they're doing a good job, you encourage that particular person. So that's your admonishment. So it says, and we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idol, to admonish those people that are not doing what they are supposed to do. And then it goes further. It says, encourage the faint-hearted. Now, that particular word in Greek for faint-hearted means little-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, just in case you thought I was selling people. <clears throat> little-souled, S. Yeah, sold. It's the English language. I can't do anything about it. Is everybody with me? Yeah, may have lost you. Maybe it wasn't a good joke. That's all right. Maybe that was it. So little sold. So that means that deep inside that this person has some anxiety or they do not feel adequate to do any type of ministry. This often happens in a couple of areas. One is prayer. There are a lot of people that feel very uncomfortable. They feel inadequate to pray in a group. So if you're in a small group and, and there's a person there that, you know, doesn't feel 
adequate, like they're worthy enough to pray in that group, here's a couple ways that you can help them. First of all, you can say, look, why don't you just say one sentence, and then I'll, I'll take over from there. So as we go around, just so you feel like you're a part of it, you just say one sentence. Just think of that sentence and just say that one sentence and let them say that one sentence. Now, you need to let the rest of the group know that that is what's going to happen. And that person knows the rest of the group is good with it, but you help that person. And what you'll find is if that person really does that, does the one sentence, in a couple of weeks, they'll say more than just one sentence. They'll say two and three, and before too long, they'll be very very comfortable with praying, but sometimes people feel very inadequate with praying. I get it. Have you ever heard those people pray, like the good ones, you know, that has all the words and all the stuff, and you're like, oh my goodness, he sounds like God, he's talking like God, he's talking to God, that is absolutely amazing. I want to let you know something this morning, God doesn't care what you say to him, he just wants you to talk to him. And so sometimes we just need to come alongside people and say, don't worry about the, the prayer gurus over here. You just say exactly what's on your heart, and you say that to God. And there is something about praying in a group and praying out loud that really helps your discipleship and helps you connect to that group. Another thing is sometimes people <clears throat> are kind of iffy on you know, serving in church. They're not really sure what to do. And and they feel inadequate to serve God in church, that is the moment that we come alongside them and we help them with whatever issue that they might have with their inadequacy. Maybe they don't feel like that they can teach kids, and they tell you that. They want to teach kids, but they feel like they just can't do that. And maybe that's the moment that you come alongside them and you encourage them along the way to say, hey, this is in your area of giftedness. Let me help you with this. And so you move them along. So it says here, you encourage the people that are faint-hearted, that feel inadequate. Um, I want to just say this for some reason. There are a lot of mothers that feel inadequate to raise their children, and there's a lot of dads that feel inadequate to be fathers. If you're living with someone that is a mother, and you're the dad, and she feels inadequate, the best thing you can do is to encourage her and let her know that she's a good mom. And if the dad is in the relationship and he doesn't feel like he's doing good with the relationship, the best thing that you can do as a wife is to encourage him that he is a good dad and help him grow in that. Is everybody tracking with me? We admonish the people that are faint-hearted, that, that just feel kind of depressed about it, like they do not feel adequate with it. So we continue with this. It says, help the weak. The weak means anybody that's weak, maybe they have a physical condition that makes them weak, or maybe they are weak because they keep falling into the same sin over and over again. So we help the weak. And then we get to this amazing word. It says, be patient <laughs> with them all. Be patient with them all. Be patient with the faint-hearted you know, be patient with the weak. Um, be patient with the idle. Because here's the deal. You can invest in people and invest in people and invest in people. But sometimes they just don't do what you want them to do. Sometimes they don't go in the direction that they need to go in. They go in an opposite direction. Have any of you ever raised children? It's kind of like that, right? And so you have these people that you really care about in the family of God. 
right? And you want them to go in a particular direction, and they choose to go in a different direction. And sometimes it is very difficult to be patient because you've invested and invested and invested. Let me show you the Greek word for this. I'm not going to try to say this one. There it is. That, is. that is actually, in the Greek, it's five syllables. And I just don't get into five syllable words. Way too big for me. Sophisticated. But I want you to notice this part of this Greek word. What's this, what this is made of. It's thumeo. Okay? That word means anger. And actually, that word means a short fuse. And so when you put it together like this, it says, be patient. It means have a long fuse. Have a long fuse with people. A long fuse. And depending on who it is, depends on how long the fuse needs to be. <clears throat> Come on, that was good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It, it depends on me because there's some people, there's some people that you have to add wire to that fuse, right? Like your fuse is good for everybody else, but then there, there, that, there's that this one person you're like, oh my goodness, can you just pause a moment? I need to go get some string. I need to make my fuse a little bit longer, okay? And so patience is not getting to the point where you're angry real quick or you're frustrated with people because they're not doing exactly what they should be doing. A long fuse enables you to help the idle, help the weak, and help the people that you're supposed to help. People do not change automatically when you have a conversation with them. It takes time, and you have to be patient. I can think, in 15 years of being here, I can think of some people that because... There was patience involved in a long fuse. They are better people today and out of the stuff that we confronted them with several years ago. Is everybody tracking? I don't want you to think that I call you on the phone and we do this sort of thing, but it's stuff that we prayed with people that said, we're struggling with this. And they struggled and they struggled and they struggled and we just had a long fuse. You have to have a long fuse with people. You have to be patient because they do not always do what they are supposed to do. So that brings us back to 15. It says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. In other words, make sure that you don't have a short fuse, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So to wrap this up today, I want to give you a couple of ways that you can do good to everyone. Okay? And here they are. Number one, <clears throat> look outside of yourself and what you want. If you're going to do good for other people, you have to look outside of yourself and what you want. You have to look at what's best for them, not what's best for you. Okay? And that's the only way you can do good. Get outside of yourself. Number two, don't be the judgment police. Right? Don't be the judgment police. You cannot do good being the judgment police. But if something concerns you, admonish that person. Admonish them in a loving way. But don't be the judgment police. Number three, give a good word. A good word. A good word does not have to be a sappy word. Do not give sappy words. Those are not good words. People get wet. It's spit involved. It's just not good. Don't give sappy words. Give true words. 
There's some people that just need a good word of encouragement. And then there's other people that just need a good word of, hey, that is not really the right thing to do, and you should do this this way. Okay? That is a good word. Number four, have a long fuse. And if your fuse isn't long enough, make it longer. Okay? And then number five, don't run from people who will admonish you. Don't run from people who will admonish you. The people that admonish you um, care enough for you to bring something to light for you to think about. Look, there's sometimes that people bring stuff to you to think about that they're absolutely dead center right on. And there's sometimes people bring stuff to you that they're not right, but there's something in what they said where you realize you need to adjust your attitude just a little bit, right? So anytime someone admonishes you, it helps you out. So there you go. That's the first part of, um, you know, we are family. That's the first part. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stage you've given us. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Father, that we um, are a family. I pray, Father, that you will help us um, live like a family. That we'll be patient with each other. We'll be at peace with each other. We'll love each other. It is not a license to ignore things that are wrong or um, it's not a license not to give encouragement to where encouragement is needed. I pray, Father, that we'll be a, a family that supports each other and cares, respects, and desires um, only what is good for each other. So, Father, we... We thank you for this moment, and we thank you for this time, and we lay it at your feet, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand, and as we sing, the altar is open for you if you need it, and I'm here to pray for you as well if you need that, so as we sing. About three weeks ago, um, 
I had a friend of mine, he was speaking in Winston, and I went to hear him. And while I was there, I didn't know this. It caught me way off guard. He spoke about me and my friendship with him and, and how that has impacted his life. And it was in that moment, because I, I it was really down that particular day. It's in that moment that that encouraging word turned me around. It really encouraged my heart. And I'll tell you, I'm not over it yet. A good word from three weeks ago that was unexpected still fuels me today. I'm not saying that God doesn't fuel me. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to follow him. I'm not saying that. But it is amazing what happens when the family of God admonishes one another. It is amazing what happens to a soul that in that moment was a little bit weak and felt a little bit inadequate. So never underestimate a good word that you can pass on to somebody. You don't know what that would do for them, especially when it's a good word unexpected. It may be the very thing that would change the course of their day. And that is why God has commanded us to do that. So with that said, I love you all. In grace and peace, I'll see you next week.